are we are we are the, the nonprofit, nonprofit collective, collective podcast bringing together voices to explore and inspire the nonprofit world hi and welcome to the nonprofit collective podcast i'm your co-host brianna williams and i'm your other co-host anna sofia hernandez Today, we are talking about the blurred lines between the nonprofit industry and the for-profit sector. We brought on three professionals, each coming from different areas of the sector, but all are in agreement of the importance around impact measurement and management and the collaboration of social enterprises and nonprofits to see a greater impact in our world. We found this to be a fascinating conversation, and we hope that you do as well. Today we are going to be talking about social impact, the social sector, and kind of the blurring lines between the for-profit and nonprofit coming into this space. Uh, so we have three experts in this area, uh, and I will let them introduce themselves. So Adam, why don't we start with you? Uh, so my name's Adam Rothsacks, and I am the Administrative Director of the Nonprofit Leadership Masters at the University of Pennsylvania. Great. I know that you have a little bit of a background in the social sector before you came to education. Do you want to touch a little bit on that right now as well? Sure, absolutely. So before entering higher ed sort of uh, formally, I worked with a social enterprise that sent uh, U.S. college students abroad to work with nonprofits in the developing world. Mostly, I worked mostly in Peru and Mexico, but we sent students to Belize, uh, India, Thailand, and Ghana as well and used a model where the students paid for the experience and that covered, you know, room and board and experience, tourist stuff and things like that. But we also used their funding to, or their fees to fund the nonprofits that they volunteered with internationally. So it used a social enterprise model to fund nonprofits. Um, so my name is Maud, and I'm a recent graduate from, I recently graduated from an MPA at CIPA uh, at Columbia University. And prior to that, I was working for a social enterprise in West Africa in Togo. And this social enterprise was specialized in uh, access to energy and microfinance. Great. And I'm Lissa Glasgow. I uh, work for the Global Impact Investing Network, uh, the GIN. I specifically focus on impact measurement and management and work on projects that um, that help set understanding for investors of, of what good metrics look like and how we can base our metric selection on evidence. Thank you. So I want to start off with very broad level. How did you come to find yourself in this space? What's your story? Ooh, um, not a linear path. I started out actually as a, a journalism major in undergrad, or rather English major, trying to get into journalism. And I happened to graduate just after the crash, the recession started, and had kind of come up with this idea that I wanted to travel, but I wanted someone else to pay me to travel. Um, which is why I was getting into journalism <laughs> in the first place. But where that took me was to uh, also to West Africa, to Benin through the Peace Corps. And there were practical reasons for that. Obviously, graduating into the recession with an English major is probably <laughs> not the most strategic move, but also kind of impact-oriented reasons. I think I wanted to go and do something really hard and see if there was a way to to do something positive while I was at it. And 
that completely shifted what I thought I was going to do with my life. I came back, was no longer trying to write blogs on various places and was instead trying to to look for a way to get involved in the broader international development space. So I um, spent a couple of years in sexual and reproductive health programs and research in DC, and then eventually transitioned a little bit closer towards the social enterprise space. Went back to school to do a lot more of that theory and quant work and learn how to do impact evaluations in um, in the not nonprofit world a little bit differently. And that was great. And then I landed here in the impact investing world. Um, so on my side, I don't know if it was really expected or unexpected. I would say that after I did my undergrad in international business and finance, and after that, I knew I wanted to have some work experience. And I also knew I wanted to work for for a company uh, that values aligned with my own values. So I looked around at different companies. I also knew I didn't want necessarily to go back to my home country in Europe. So I was looking around at different companies and I identified this French NGO, Entrepreneur du Monde, that was creating social enterprises all around the world in access to energy, microfinance, and help to uh, small businesses to develop. So I contacted them and they ended up offering me a position in their access to energy social enterprise in Togo. So it's pretty much how I ended up there. And one of my main missions there, but we'll probably talk about it uh, later on, was to actually conduct a, a audit, an internal audit of the social enterprise. So to evaluate all their actions and all their impact and see how they could actually improve that uh, impact. And Adam, do you want to talk a little bit about what got you into that the social enterprise and maybe also what uh, made you decide to come out of that social enterprise and move into a higher education? Sure, absolutely. So I, I always thought my path was unique, but um, Lissa just basically described my path. Um, uh, I was a history and Latin American studies major with the goal of being a journalist and living abroad and getting somebody else to pay me to live abroad. And uh, I started out, I was sort of told by some, I worked in radio mostly, and uh, one of my news directors said, well, there are two ways to do this. Either you work in the US, work your way up, become important enough or good enough that a national organization here in the U.S. will send you abroad. The other option is just go abroad, just leave and string and uh, write stories and try to sell them. And I tried the first path uh, for a couple years and got very, I don't, I don't know that I was fully disillusioned, but I was a little frustrated with how the nonprofit sector was, I mean, the journalism sector was sort of working And I reconnected with an organization that I had volunteered with in Peru, and they had a job available. And I saw it as as an opportunity to do the other path, live abroad, get a job that would keep me, um, you know, fed and and housed, but then string and write and report back for and try to sell my stories back to the U.S. And I started doing that and realized I fell in love with international education. Uh, I loved working with the students. I loved working with the nonprofits. I loved coming back to the U.S. and recruiting at universities. It was, uh, I found myself a career. And I did that for about seven years. And I started to explore a little bit more what what we were actually doing. Having undergrads volunteer abroad with nonprofits that are based internationally, how much were they contributing? How much weren't they contributing? How much were they drawing from the community? 
really made me start to question a lot of what the organization was doing. I still believe that the organization was doing good, but I, I started to wonder how good it was and, and how we could make it better. So I wound up going back for my master's at Penn and not in nonprofit leadership, but in international education. And while I was doing that, I discovered the nonprofit leadership program and connected with the, our faculty director and saw sort of the flip side of that opportunity for me. Instead of taking U.S. undergrads and sending them abroad to work with nonprofits, then our program works with master's students, mostly U.S.-based, although we do have an international cohort each year, working with nonprofits more domestically or at least within the communities where the students are more familiar. So it sort of flipped it on its head for me. And I saw an opportunity to sort of expand my understanding and my contribution to the nonprofit sector through, through the nonprofit leadership program and still be able to work with students, still be able to work with nonprofits, those pieces that really are what I love about my, about what my career has become. Great. I want to start off with talking about impact a little bit of the impact of the the work that the social sector is doing. And Adam, you talked lightly about this, of seeing the work that the company was that you were working with and thinking, uh, we're doing this well, but we could probably do this better. What were you measuring for the impact of that social enterprise? And do you think that you were measuring the the right components to actually see the impact of the work? So I, that was something that really got me questioning the organization and how we could do it better because what I came to realize, and I only really understood it after I got my master's and was looking back, but that we were really measuring outputs and outcomes instead of impact. So we were looking at, you know, how many cleaner burning stoves had we built and how many schools had we built and how many students were attending those schools and uh, how many, you know, language classes were we teaching or how many women had had uh, been provided services at a shelter that we that we worked with. So we were measuring those sort of tangibles of people and, you know, construction and, and volunteer hours and things like that, which I think was more on the outputs and outcomes side of thing, as opposed to really the impact side. I think as I started to uh, to leave and started to get ready to move on, we did start to really explore the impact piece. We had a cleaner burning stove project that I think was the most developed and really did a good job of trying to get to that impact measurement. And that one really looked at the science of, well, if people use this cleaner burning stove, how much less fuel are they using and how much less air indoor air pollution as a result was happening? And Therefore, what are the long-term health consequences and what are the long-term environmental consequences of these cleaner burning stoves? How do they really improve both the lives of the people using them, but then also the uh, environmental impact of using less wood and using alternate fuel sources and things like that? So that's sort of where we started to get to as I started to transition out of the organization. But I credit our founders and even our on-site staff that ran the programs that they were always trying to get there. They were figuring out how to do that. But it was a lot easier always to say, well, we had, you know, 100 volunteers this month and they contributed this many dollars and this many hours to the organizations, which, you know, is helpful to get to the impact measurement, but is not quite an impact measurement. Yeah, Adam, I would completely agree. I so where I sit at the gin, we talk about metrics all the time. Um, 
we run uh, the generally accepted system for impact investors to measure and manage their impact. And to your point, we never talk about impact measurement now. We we always talk about impact measurement and management. Because if you're not using the data that you're collecting to to strengthen the programs that you're putting together to like think very critically about how to make them more impactful, there's not quite as much of a point to collecting the data as you might think other than, you know, reporting. But one of the other things I really loved that you just said was um, was about basing the assumptions between outputs, outcomes, and impacts on evidence. And I think that's so important. I One thing that we hear a lot when we talk to investors in particular, but also entrepreneurs, really just everybody out there, is that measuring something like an impact or, or even like an outcome is often a lot harder than measuring uh, something like an output and input because you're you essentially have to go to the people or the the thing that is experiencing the impact and ask them about it, right? And you have to do often some sort of methodological work like a, a randomization or some sort of control so you can actually see what would have happened otherwise. And that can be really difficult, I think, or or maybe more than difficult, it can be quite costly. And when a lot of nonprofits or social enterprises are running on pretty close um, profit margins, you have to be careful about all of that. So one thing we hear a lot is that people want to be able to say that we are driving some huge impact. And what we like to say is, if you're going to say that you're doing it, you have to measure it uh, and manage towards it. And if you can't measure the actual thing, the actual outcome or impact that you're driving towards, you at least need to base as many of those assumptions as you can on a strong evidence base, um, which is something that we've worked quite a bit on in the last two years. And I think we're excited to see that it's it's definitely not just us. I think the entire space is really trying to, to look at what does evidence say is possible and what do we need to measure to figure out if we're even doing that. So love everything that you just said. So what are the generally accepted practices of measuring impact? So, so the gin has released, uh, and I like full disclosure, going to go with gin logic here. Um, the gin is, is released a couple of different things, perhaps most relevantly, the core characteristics for impact investing. So it's four main pieces that that is like, what does it take to call yourself an impact investor? I think impact investing is like 10 years old at this point. It's really new. And so we're getting a lot of energy. People are entering the space and it's become the right time for us to collectively as a, an industry say, OK, but if you're really doing this, what are the kind of lines in the sand that we need to clear in order to to be getting there? And one of those is around impact measurement. So if you're going to say that you're doing impact, you need to measure it and manage towards it. And so the system that we manage is called Iris Plus. We call it the generally accepted system for measuring and managing impact. And what it entails is basically helping impact investors and sometimes enterprises and researchers and other folks working within the space to go in and say, okay, what are you trying to do? Let's be really clear about your goal based on all of that information. So let's say I'm investing in agriculture. The system will say, okay, are you looking at sustainability? Are you looking at smallholder agriculture? Are you looking at this other space? And let's say I choose smallholder agriculture. It'll say, okay, you can work in this space and be working towards improving farm profitability. You can be working towards um, improving food security. You can be working towards a number of different things. 
you wouldn't measure farm profitability and um, food security in the same way. So it helps you kind of narrow in there. And then based on that, it gives you a deep dive into the evidence and then a core set of metrics that's customizable based on us talking to over 800 different stakeholders over the past two years to really figure out what's standard best practice. And maybe the underlying point to your question is that it's still a growing industry. And I think we are all, no matter if you're in impact investing, social enterprise, nonprofits, any combination of those, we're all learning about what good impact measurement and management is. And there's a lot of places we can learn from other spaces like evaluators and all of those folks that have been doing this for years. But but we really have to keep talking to each other and learning as we go. So Moj, you did an audit for the organization that you were working with. How did that look like? What was the purpose of the audit? How can you kind of tie it into all these things that Lissa and Adam were saying? So it's actually pretty much joining what uh, you you were both saying earlier. So the tool I was using back then was called uh, Cerise. And so we had seven different dimensions, which are projects, public, product, HR, ethic, profit, and partnership. So basically, the way I conducted that audit is that I would go and meet representative of all the different categories of stakeholders, interview them, gather information from them, either qualitative or quantitative data on them, on their perception of the business and uh, the impact that the business had on them. For So, for example, for resellers or direct beneficiaries of uh, the access to energy social enterprise, it would be, well, now that you're reselling, let's say, 20 solar lamp. So what is your direct impact? Did you increase your sell? Do you have a perception of increasing your profit? So this type of question to measure an increase. Then I would also review primary data and analyze both those primary data that I would see, secondary data as well, a little bit, and mostly those um, stakeholders interview. I would analyze all this data, gather it in sort of Excel grid that is built by the Cerise organization. And that would give grades as percentages of or uh, performance, basically, on those different dimensions. So you would have a certain percentage for, let's say, project, another one for profit, and all that. So you could see through that where are your strengths, where are your weaknesses, and what can you do from it. And then you would have an overall percentage grade of that. So... That really helped us because, as I mentioned, the structure of the organization I was working for, it was one mother NGO that was like, creating all those social enterprises. So basically, in Togo, the Access to Energy Social Enterprise, Mivo Energy, that I was working for, we were four years old at that time. But there were other access to energy social enterprises that were in other parts of the world. So some were in Burkina Faso, other in Haiti. And for those that actually did those audit, it was also a way to compare where we were at. What, for example, in Togo, what were we doing better than the access to energy social enterprise in Burkina and what were they doing better. And so this would also allow for this like exchange of knowledge and help in between the different social enterprises. 
so it seems like the the impact measurement and management is a hot topic right now in the social sector, but there's a lot that I can see that crosses into nonprofit industry as well. And I do think that nonprofits have focused a lot more on that direct short-term impact and do think to forget about that the long-term measurement uh, or the long-term impact of the work that they are doing. Adam, I would like to ask you, how is UPenn training the leaders in their nonprofit leadership program to really think of that long term of measuring and managing the impact of the work that they're doing in the nonprofit space? Yeah, thank you. I So I think nonprofits are actually thinking about that and, and our students are already thinking about that when they come into the program. And I think one of the bigger issues is funders are, are not always long-term funders. And I think that's part of the problem that the nonprofit sector faces right now. And so what we're trying to train our leaders to do and our students to do is be advocates for new funding models. We're still within the nonprofit sector. So we also explore social enterprises and corporate social responsibility and benefit corporations. But those students who are really committed to how nonprofits operate, we're helping them to be better advocates for general grants and and long-term grants so that it's not here's money for this year and you have to re- reapply next year because that basically traps nonprofits in that cycle of, well, if we're only going to get money for this year, the application only asks what are the outcomes for that year or what are we hoping for or what were last year's outcomes that can prove we deserve this funding. But if instead we train our students and the future leaders of nonprofits to say, no, we're not going to chase one-year grants. You have to do a better job of funding three, five, even 10-year grants. And and that, I don't think those exist yet, but really, (laughs) yeah, exactly. I mean, but that's how we should be thinking in this sector is we really can't keep saying, okay, here's here's the money for one year. Good luck. So it really has to become nonprofits saying, we're going to go after the three-year grants. And here's the proof that Year one is pre, um, you know, we haven't gotten any of the money. We haven't done this. Here's the baseline. Year two is here's while it's happening. And year three is here's the summative evaluation of what did happen and, and sort of why we use the money the best way we could. And here are the actual impacts related to it. So we're, we're helping our students to really talk about that and do projects in class that focus on that. A few of our classes work regularly with uh, clients in sort of consulting capacities uh, with nonprofits, and we revisit the same nonprofits each year. Our students do a practicum where they spend the two semesters of the program with a nonprofit, and we keep those partners going year after year so that current students can learn from past students and can pass information along to future students as part of it. So we're trying to change sort of the philosophy of funding in the nonprofit sector that it's not chasing one year grants, it's not chasing short-term money, that it's really advocating for long-term impact and therefore giving them the skills to measure that. So we have a social impact measurement class that looks at how do you measure that? What should you be looking at? We have a data analysis class that looks at how do you gather all the data related to it and then um, use it ethically to figure out um, what are the what are the impacts of the work that the nonprofit sector is doing. Yeah, yeah, that that's great, and completely agree that you know as we're moving towards 
new needs that uh, the nonprofit needs to start adjusting (laughs) with some of that too, that there's still a lot of old ways of thinking in our industry. I want to bring this on the flip side around impact investments, because I do think for those that are the for-profit or the social enterprises, that impact investing can be that the long-term investment in seeing that impact that you can measure and manage. But I am wondering if either of you or any of you can speak to maybe the downside of that, of some of maybe the complaints from the social enterprise world of taking an impact investment to support their work. Yeah, um, it's a great question. And I think you hear a lot of different things from different types of social enterprises, so not to split this into further more categories. But I had a conversation recently with a group of, um, of entrepreneurs that I thought was really interesting in that a number of them were really happy that there were impact investors out there. They saw them as kind of um, coaches, as somebody who could help them really support the missions that they had started the social enterprises to have. Like their concern was that if they were to seek more traditional capital, that investor wouldn't necessarily be aligned with the the mission built into the, the social enterprise. And so they would be pushed towards having less impact and driving towards greater profits or something like that. The other side of the table, though, was was pretty adamant that when they had sought impact investments in the past, that that had come with I'm trying to remember how they put it. I think they said it came with the same amount of money, but way more strings attached. And it was, they were saying, you know, I could get traditional capital and it would not require me to do as much of all of this impact evaluation work. We see some of it as valuable, but some of it honestly is for things that we don't care about that are not central to our intent in creating this um, this social enterprise. And I thought that was a really interesting conversation, particularly from where I sit, uh, setting up systems that impact investors are um, are supposed to use in terms of selecting metrics and, and basing decision-making on evidence. We we think a lot, and I hope that we will continue to push ourselves to think about developing systems that lead to less of a burden on enterprises. I think what we want to do ultimately is give investors and the uh, the enterprises that they work with the tools to kind of help them jump ahead, like pre-do a lot of the homework in looking at the evidence and figuring out what those pieces of information they need to collect are. But I think sometimes there's a tension between those of us who are data nerds wanting to know everything. We want to have a really deep data set. We want to have lots of variables. We want to understand positive and negative impacts and outcomes and all of these things. And striking that balance between what is useful and necessary to the impact being created and enough information for us to manage towards greater impact is is kind of the goal. And it's a hard line to walk, particularly when you're working across countries or across different sectors. Um, you mentioned, Maud, um, looking at qualitative and quantitative data. And that can there's, there's lots of conversations about when you use those and when you use both. Yeah, I think it's something, I, I think my underlying like <laughs> theme here is we just have to keep figuring it all out. But I do think there's it's easy to get kind of siloed from where you're sitting in the organization and want to know everything. And we have to kind of think about what's happening on the ground as well. I really agree with you when uh, with you, Lisa, when you say that it's a very fine line in between the two. And I'm a big believer of the social enterprise 
uh, model in the sense that uh, by being able to sustain, uh, to financially and economically sustain on your own and not depending on external funders, I think that gives the the organization a more long-term view on its activities and on its development as well. And to me, that is something that is extremely important in especially in impact where we have this uh, very big and this important social mission as well. Well, I think that the economic side is even more important in the sense that we really need to make sure that we have enough finances and enough, um, yes, enough finance, uh, finances in the long term to keep having our activities and keep having this impact and increase, like scale up this impact. Um, so I think that in that the impact investing space is playing a big role also because for smaller organization or younger organization like startups, for example, the impact investing space will help them not only financially, but also, as Lisa mentioned earlier, th more also through the management side and the scaling up of activities. So all those different dimensions, uh, not only financially. And I think that's something that is very key, this sharing knowledge part as well to, to impact. So uh, Adam, back to your point of funders in the nonprofit industry needing to provide long-term funding to organizations to start seeing greater impact. How can it be that maybe funders are holding back the nonprofit sector and allowing space for these social enterprise uh, social enterprises to come in and kind of have that more socially conscious model and have the the funding to pursue these efforts uh, that nonprofits can't? And like, what are some concerns around the blurring of the lines now between the, the um, social enterprises and nonprofits? Uh, so I think some of it uh, is ethical that the question becomes if you're making money off of these social impact ideas, who's benefiting? Uh, and if you're basing it off of um, social impact investing, are we headed down the road of it moving away from a social good and becoming capital good that it's making money for somebody else and it becomes another product as any other product would be? The nonprofits, the idea is that they're mission-driven organizations and that their bottom line is not a dollar or, um, you know, multiple dollars, but their bottom line are, are their stakeholders, that that's really who they're focusing on. And although social enterprises are always framed as the triple bottom line and that the stakeholders are an element of that, is there a division if it becomes um, moving away from mission-driven and a single stakeholder bottom line into the financial piece of it, they have to sustain themselves somehow. Uh, do they move away from their stakeholders in order to make sure they're sustainably, they're financially sustainable? And what risk does that lead to in terms of how they serve their stakeholders and um, how they make sure that they're aligned with their mission? Now, all of these things are elements that nonprofits face as well. Mission drift is a huge issue and chasing after those funder dollars and, and not having them consistently. So you know, I don't know that there's a there's a one size fits all. And that's why I think the full spectrum of organizations that are developing are ultimately good. I, I don't think one is the right way to go. But I do think if there's a move to completely get rid of nonprofits and defund nonprofits and the structure they, they, um, they exist in, that's where it gets uh, dangerous. You know, I, our founding director talks about how nonprofits exist because it's something that for profits 
don't see a financial incentive to serve and government doesn't have a public will to serve. And so the nonprofits are filling that gap between the, those two other sectors. And so where social enterprises develop, clearly there is now a financial market to serve. And so it makes sense for those to develop, but nonprofits still have a, a place within that to make sure that they're serving that population that isn't always served. Yeah. So I like the way you said that, uh, the idea of a full spectrum of of different folks and different organizations taking on a particular issue or set of issues. I think that's that's something we've seen quite a bit in impact investing. If you frame impact investing as not just those kind of market rate folks, but but really a, a full spectrum of folks that would include foundations where they're investing in something, but really all they are aiming to do is is kind of like retain the amount of capital that they have. They're aiming for capital preservation all the way to the folks that need to get like really market rate pieces because that's their fiduciary duty and that's kind of written into their charter. So you see the kind of a full range. And I think it's really been interesting to see, uh, maybe to your point, the, the kind of start of an interplay between the nonprofit space and the impact investing like maybe more traditional capital spaces. You see things like blended finance, where a foundation will come in and say, listen, we don't have the amount of capital that we need to do this incredibly impactful thing, but we do have the ability to take kind of the first loss on it. So we can we can reduce the risk pretty significantly for somebody else who has a little bit more traditional constraints to come in and bring a lot more capital. Um, and so by kind of joining forces for the greater good, they're able to go into deals that might not otherwise happen. So I think it's interesting to start seeing that happening more and start seeing investing or social enterprise be able to to unlock capital that wasn't there otherwise. My hope is that as we do that, we are being really, really conscious about impact washing, which I think was also implicit in, in your, your thoughts there, Adam. I think we do have to have a pretty strong view on what counts as impact uh, as we start playing with new structures and, and things like that. But, but it is exciting to see people get a little bit creative around what different combinations of maybe slightly unusual actors in the past can um, bring to bear. And Maud, you, uh, when we had talked earlier, you um, had some opinions around NGOs and the work that they're doing alongside the social enterprise industry. Do you want to talk a little bit about that as well? So I, I think I mentioned part of it earlier in terms of the economic sustainability of both. I, it's something I did notice working both with NGOs and social enterprises that sometimes I've... I, I cannot say that it's something that we can generalize, of course, to all entities. I, I think it's really specific to certain entities, but I strongly believe that having to be economically sustainable will often drive to more efficiency in the activities. And being more efficient in your activities is often synonym of greater impact when you have that social mission, of course. And so... Uh, as I mentioned earlier, to me, having this economic sustainability and being able to see more long term to estimate your profit and not depends fully depends on grants. Of course, you have some models that like, the, for example, the social enterprise I was working for, Mivo Energy, when I was working there, they were not economically sustainable yet. So we were still depending on grant, but we also had some form of revenue that we were reinvesting. And I think that whether it's an NGO or a social enterprise, your employees are also part of your beneficiaries in some ways, because 
you're creating this value, you're employing people, you're giving them a salary. So it, it's part of the economic circle. So it, it's it's really that part also being able to make sure that you're going to be able to sustain your activities over time that I think is really important and have a greater impact as well. I want to jump in and push back a little bit about the the efficiencies leading to sustainability and and sort of creating opportunities uh, for the social enterprises to succeed where nonprofits might not. I definitely think there's a place for that. But one of the examples that I've learned within the past few years is sort of the education example. And the way it's framed very broadly is the idea that in the United States, a wealthy family is more than happy to invest you know, $100,000 or more into a a single child's education in the, you know, even K through 12 uh, range, not even talking about higher ed, which in the US is a whole nother topic. But the idea that nobody sort of complains about that and says it's unfair or it's not right to invest that much money in your child's education. Whereas nonprofits in the developing world or even social enterprises in the developing world that focus on education are often pushed to be more efficient and more sustainable and spend less money per student, but show these greater outcomes and and greater impact. And an organization that we've worked with uh, in the the past through the nonprofit leadership program works in South Africa and really bucks that trend and believes that investing huge amounts of money well into individual students in education in South Africa shows some of these incredible impacts. And so sometimes that's where the social enterprise model, the the sort of capital uh, efficiencies model doesn't always help with nonprofits or doesn't always help drive impact because uh, sometimes it takes a huge investment to make an impact. And if we're always chasing efficiencies, we lose sight of making sure that we're uh, really focusing on the benefit um, beneficiaries of of those nonprofits, the the stakeholders, the, the the people that are served, and so I I do worry sometimes that too much of a focus on sort of the the capitalist efficiencies that come with social enterprises means that nonprofits are bumped out of that space. I I think that goes back, Adam, to your prior comments being made around the funders and the the short-term funding and wanting to see very fast turnarounds on the the outputs of the work that the nonprofits are doing instead of allowing that the long-term or the larger uh, investments of capital to see a, a broader scale of work or impact being done. So I I guess I'll wrap it up a little bit, but I did want to ask one last question that I had and then I lost it. Uh, <laughs> how how do you think that nonprofits or NGOs can continue to compete with the ever-growing, socially conscious, for-profit industry that is, is coming up that are looking for these larger capital investments that are going to be able to do maybe longer-term work? How can nonprofits still keep themselves relevant and competitive in this space? I can take a stab. <laughs> um, one thing I would... I think I mentioned I, I meant to mention earlier and didn't necessarily is that I I don't think that we should necessarily assume that investments will be longer term. 
you still see a number of investments that are pretty short. And actually, I was having a conversation recently with somebody in the housing space about how an investment in an affordable housing project, you can lose a lot of impact if you have a shorter term investment and then transfer to a new person if you're not doing some sort of like responsible exit. You could lose a ton of affordability there. And so I think the onus is still on investors to be thinking long term, and it's not necessarily built in. Um, nonprofits and social enterprises. I I think that we should still collectively be thinking the, about them as as working hand in hand. I know that might be a little bit rose colored glasses of me, but I can give a couple of examples of organizations who who are historically nonprofits. So Water.org would be one, or FHI 360 would be one that have been working in the nonprofit space quite thoughtfully for quite some time. And they've recently created in social investing arms. So FHI 360 has created FHI Ventures, Water.org has created Water Equity. And what they're doing in doing that is really just building on all of the work and the thought and the experience that they have in the past and taking it to a new space in, in a way that will allow them to flex a little bit the models that they've had to use in the past and, and be able to kind of like complement approaches that have worked quite well in the past and that can be pushed to the next level by a slightly different structure uh, in the investment or the so- social enterprise space. So I think I think there's a lot to be said for not thinking about these as extremely competitive <laughs> spaces. I do think that they can coexist in that probably what will happen is that they'll continue to push each other. There will probably always be some tension to Maud's point about efficiencies and rigor maybe is a way to say it between wanting to measure the depth of things in the way that theory and that evaluators have told us for a long time are most effective and going to be most thoughtful and and the need to uh, to do so with an eye towards the the bottom the financial bottom line balancing social and financial bottom lines and environmental so that was me just kind of blabbing for a long time but basically i don't think they're <laughs> separate um, always so to to Lisa's point, I also th- I really think that actually I wouldn't say that nonprofit and social enterprises are competitors. I would say that they're more. I, I would say that um, nonprofit and social enterprises are more complementary of each other, in in the same sense that I was saying earlier that some social enterprises are more efficient in terms of impact, for example, than NGOs. Some NGOs are also more efficient, and it's important to highlight it as well. However. It's. I mean, I would say that it's one of the main reasons why I think that those two are complementary, more yeah, more complementary than competitors actually, and they stay very important to the market. So, I, I also recently worked for Acumen Fund, and some of their investment, they're not expecting any financial returns on it, and it's only very recently that they created other investment where they will have returns on it. So it, it's those different visions and those different like expectations also that will drive whether you want ha- to have returns, so for profit, or if you want not to have any returns. Um, so if you don't want to have any returns, so more like the nonprofit side. And in, it really depends, I would say, on the context. In some contexts, a nonprofit would work way better. And also because in some period of time, you're going to have a lot of grants and a lot of fundings available. But 
in other contexts and other time period, you're going to have less so of those financial um, uh, possibilities. So it's where I would say that when you have less so of those financial uh, financing opportunities, that social enterprises will take a, like a bigger step in, in the sense that they would have this like financial flexibility that NGOs will have less. So I would say that the difference would be mostly in that, and that depending on the financial forecast and the financing forecast available, like NGOs should probably like look ahead at that and be able to anticipate the inflow of investment uh, possible. I would absolutely echo uh, what Lisa and, and Maud are saying around the collaboration and the complementary nature and the fact that they don't have to be um, competitors. And the only other thing I would add is that I would also urge nonprofit leaders and social enterprise founders and leaders to consider whether they need to exist or not. Is there an organization out there that's doing what they want to do and can they improve it? Um, can they work with that organization? Can they partner with them? Can they, instead of creating something new, find something that exists and make it that much better? Because I do think that there is a competition for the dollars, for the funding. And the more that nonprofits and social enterprises can collaborate and share that the, in some ways, limited uh, funds, the more successful everybody can be and the, the greater impact that all of these social sector organizations can create. Great. I couldn't have said that better. Uh, I think Anna, Sophia and I are, are sitting here with a, a big smile on our face because we've had many conversations uh, around that exact same topic, Adam, of uh, when you should actually start a nonprofit and when maybe you should collaborate with organizations that are already out there. Yeah, it's a big thing I stress with my students all the time is, do you really need to create your own? Let's let's talk about yes, this. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, so with that, I will wrap up our conversation. Thank you all for adding your insights and your, your background in professionalism to this topic. And for our listeners out there, as always, we welcome your feedback. This podcast is, is for you. So please let us know what other topics are out there that you would like us to dive into deeper. And you can find us at Twitter and on Facebook. We are at NP Collective Pod. 